Hello, this is international football commentator Derek Ray, and you're listening to the Ranks FC podcast. Squad and welcome to Ranks FC. It's your favourite football podcast back for another week. And if you can't hear me because my voice is completely gone, is because I got back from Glastonbury yesterday. So Sam is going to be doing a lot of the heavy lifting here. How you doing, mate? So same as usual. Weekly, weekly process restored, is it? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm the one that usually has to talk loads here. So you save yourself, buddy. Although you don't actually sound that bad. Yeah, it was it was bad yesterday, I'll be honest. I've had a lot of strepsils, a lot of diflam, and I'm looking forward to not having to speak for the rest of the day. But uh, we will get through this first and foremost. Um, it was a wonderful weekend, but we'll come back to Glastonbury at the end of the pod in the gibberish. But for now, Sam, probably time to start us off with things we love. Yeah, I mean, my thing I love this week, uh, and it has taken me by surprise, Jack, it's, uh, it's MLS. MLS, I've got the fever. I never thought I'd be here. Um, and, and that's not to say I've ever disrespected MLS. I don't think I ever have. Um, it's just never really taken my interest or taken my fancy to this degree. And that's changed this summer. No doubt a lack of, you know, summer tournaments has played a part in this, but everybody needs an in, right? They need a hook. And I think I found it. And I found myself watching a couple of games recently. LAFC against New York Red Bulls on Sunday night was 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 pretty good to be honest with you and Austin against Dallas was action-packed week before that I watched Real Salt Lake um and obviously yeah there are some cringy defensive moments at times it does look a bit arcadey at moments as well it's like you're watching two professionals play pro evo against each other kind of at points but there are some really good players there's some really enthralling and interesting players and the intrigue just keeps upping and upping because, Jack, I'm sure you saw, you may have not because you've been off the grid, but Gareth Bale has signed for LAFC. I, I have seen, don't worry. I, I'm, not, I'm not with okay. that off the grid. <laughs> it just adds another layer to it. And I was, I was watching LAFC on, uh, on Sunday night and I was like, they're going to put Bale in this team with Carlos Vela. Is that allowed? Is that legal? Yeah, you know, and, it's, and it's, Chiellini. It's all, it's, it's all on yeah. LAFC. It's very interesting. Very, very interesting indeed. I mean, Bale to LAFC has been one of the biggest stories outright in the world of football over the course of the weekend, Jack, while you're away. I mean, what do you think of that? Yeah, I mean, it's a massive story, isn't it? And a massive appeal and a huge superstar going to MLS. And I suppose not quite in the peak of his career, but we've, we've been talking about this for a while and saying, you know, the moment that MLS, you know, maybe lands fully as one of the big leagues or a league that people follow on a regular basis will be the moment that a superstar decides to go there in the prime of their career. Now, Bill isn't quite that, um, but they're getting younger, aren't they? This is the, mm. you know, he used to be legends at the very end of their careers. This is a player who still is an incredible talent, incredible footballer who has just won the Champions League, um, yeah. who has led his country to a World Cup, going to MLS, to, to play across that summer. And I think that's an amazing thing for the league. Um, and it will continue to, you know, it continues to improve and it will continue to attract higher and higher quality players. Um, and at that point, it feels like everything will move into that direction where it's inevitably going. Yeah, I think he's in better shape than Stephen Gerrard was when he joined MLS. Uh, Frank Lampard, certainly. Quite a lot of these places. He's definitely in better shape than Chiellini is, uh, his, his, his new fellow teammate. We were rolling this round on the post box on Monday, Jack, without you as you were recovering. And um, 
we were talking about you know, who is the who is the best player that MLS have attracted in terms of when they were in the prime of their career. And the answer is probably David Villa because he still had absolutely tons left. And what he did in MLS was absolutely insane. Robbie Keane, perhaps. Yeah. So, we're to, I, but I think, um, I think that Bale comes in as like maybe sort of a top three in terms of what they still got left. Yeah. So it is a real, it is a real um, turn in the right direction here or continued turn in the right direction. It does also, by the way, him and Vela, you know, they're going to have to coexist, man, because they want to play in the same spaces. <laughs> yes, it's going to be very interesting to see how that one develops, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I, I like it a lot. I think it's a really interesting move. And and yeah, I think this is a, it's been a good start for MLS this year, hasn't it? It's been it's been fun mm. to watch. It's been it's been fun. And while we're looking over this summer where there isn't any international football until the women's Euro starts, it's been a bit of a, a gap, hasn't there, in terms of what this is. And, and MLS has filled that in a, in a really nice way. Yeah. Um, okie dokie um, I'm going to talk very briefly about Arsenal's business which I really like um, I really like the, t- the people they're being linked to I really like the deals they've already done um, I just think that this has all been quite fun um, and I think that when you're looking at this and you know, the, the latest to be linked is, is Lissandro Martinez who comes in can do left back cover can do centre back cover can play as defensive midfielder as well I just feel like at the moment Arsenal are bringing in players in the right places. Now, it's well documented how much you and I like Fabio Vieira um, mm-hmm. and how you know how excited we are about that one. He is a player that we've seen live in the flesh a couple of times this season and he has stunned us on pretty much every single one of those occasions. He comes in as sort of Erdegaard's 10 cover um, rather than probably playing off the wing. But then you look at Gabriel Jesus, who seems to be getting closer every single day. Um, there's links to Rafinha. Then there's Saka, Martinelli, and Ketia. It's all really quite nice up in these top positions, isn't it? With Erdegaard and Vieira in that mix as well. Um, and Emil Smith-Rowe. It feels like Arsenal are building a squad which is deep enough to actually compete for the top four, which we were worried about because, you know, you look at what happened last season and you look at Arsenal as a whole and you think that was the opportunity with no European football to go and get top four and get yourselves back in the Champions League. That was the big opportunity and a lot of people have said this, but it feels like they're building a squad that's deep enough to maybe be able to challenge on both of these fronts in the Europa League and for top four in the Premier League. And that feels like a you know an important thing in order to get Arsenal back to where their fans will feel that they need to be. And so... You know, these these links to Gabby Jesus, I really like. I really like this one for a little while. I think it's one of those deals that seems to fit really nicely with where they are and what they're doing. I feel like Gabby Jesus is good enough to get sort of 10, 12 goals, if he, even if he doesn't take penalties for next season, if he plays consistently for Arsenal. And I think that that's important. Um, and I think it's one of those moves that it feels like he's going to be able to take a step forward for himself. I suppose the question lies on where he plays either through the middle or or out wide. You know, he said before that he feels like often he's actually more dangerous from wide positions, which I think is interesting. Um, but now these bigger subs, benches, obviously five subs a game and this extra you know competition in the Europa League, just feel like Arsenal are doing really nice stuff and I really like their business. So that's what I'm going for on my thing I love. 
I think Gabriel Jesus is a real coup for Arsenal. No doubt about it. Um, I know that he has not necessarily scored the most goals um, and there have been some questions over his um, his finishing ability or maybe not finishing ability, but willingness to pull the trigger and, and, a, and, a, and a killer instinct or lack of it. Something that we love in a forward and, and something I haven't necessarily seen in Gabriel Jesus, but he does pretty much everything else to a really high standard and he's taking a step down from Manchester City to Arsenal when he's stepping away from the Champions League for at least one year to become a, a focal point in this team. A team that are building the right way, a team that are acquiring quality players. And you're right, Jack, they've obviously missed an opportunity to qualify for the Champions League in a year where they didn't have to play any midweek games in Europe. And now that they're going to try and do that again, they have correctly identified the fact that they just don't have enough players. You know, Arsenal really only had about 13, 14 first team players last season. And even without European football, that was not enough. Now they're starting to bulk up that squad and create genuine competition for places. It does throw up question marks in different areas for sure. Rafinha, Saka, both love the same area. It's a bit of a Vela Bale scenario. Um, and there needs to and there'll need to be some give there. Like there's lots of questions, but these are good problems to have for managers, not bad problems. Yeah, absolutely. That depth was really lacking and, and it feels like they're moving in a way that means that it might not be. Um, mm. Still would like them to go back in for Aaron Hickey. I feel like he is another one that would yeah. do a real job uh, at Arsenal, but we shall see. Um, right. After the break, we are going to be talking about managers, Sam. So don't go anywhere. Welcome back to Ranks FC, where it's time for our main ranking. Sam, floor all yours. Yes, mate. Well, while you were at Glastonbury, I was hard at work scribbling away and checking in on all of the new managers uh, that have taken the reins at different clubs over the course of the summer and trying to find a few different angles, trying to find a few angles that we haven't necessarily covered so far this summer and trying to make sure that we covered a little bit of new ground. So we're going to talk new managers at new jobs. And the key is they're stepping into scenarios which will mean that their job is very, very different to what it was before. And the club situation will change dramatically as well. So probably clubs that are replacing one style of manager with a completely different style of manager or different mold of manager. And I believe these are five, these are five men that we haven't really spoken too much about. So it is fresh ground and it should be quite interesting. Okay, absolutely. It sounds good. Uh, let's get on with it. Okay, so let's start here at number five, uh, and it's Paolo Fonseca, who at the time of recording is all but signed up for Lille, uh, and is just picking his backroom staff, reportedly, and is expected to take the reins at any point. I mean, he might be Lille manager by the time that you listen to this. And if there is a club in world football that needs a bit of fresh air breathed into it, it is most certainly Lille, because after winning the league 1 title in 2021, they finished 10th in 2022. And it was quite notable that they had a goal difference of zero. So they were 10th, bang on mid-table with a goal difference of zero. They were the epitome of average. Now, financial difficulties made, obviously, the defending the title basically impossible. And we were never really expecting that from them. But the football was really drab, wasn't it, Jack? Jocelyn Govenek did not do a particularly enthralling job. No. And I think Lilla absolutely spot on to go and look for a man who can coax a more an exciting style of play out of the players. Now, we've seen plenty of Fonseca at Roma and Shakhtar. We know that he coaches possession football. We know that he encourages good rotations in the play. He's flexible with his formations and he improves players. He coaches players and makes them better. And that's the key because he is going to need to get to work here pretty sharply. I'm looking at this list of players that are either leaving Lille, definitely, 
or have just left them this year or things are or, or, or perhaps a move is on is on the horizon for them i mean sven botman is going to go renato sanchez is going to go Ikone left in January, Reynildo left in January, Yazitsi was loaned to Russia and has been cast aside, Zeka's leaving on a free transfer, they squeezed every last drop out of Burak Yilmaz and now he's gone to the Eredivisie, Zeki Celik seems like he might be off to Roma, that boy just loves New Balance, so what is left? What, what, you know, what is left? I mean, there's like five or six pieces in the middle of this team that Fonseca gets to work with. Jose Font is doing, is doing one more year, Timothy Weyer, Angel Gomez, Jonathan David, Amadou Anana, and Captain Benjamin Andre. And that's basically it, mate. There's about six core pieces there, and the rest of it is yet to be shaped. So Fonseca needs to get to work. But the best thing that he can do is bring this team to life a little bit and show this team how to play football with a bit of verve and a bit of life again, because that has been desperately missing at Lille over the course of the year. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting one, isn't it? Because obviously they let, Yusuf Yazici go out on loan to Spartak last year. Um, and Yazici feels like the kind of player Fonseca would really like um, because obviously at Shakhtar and Roma, he played with those 4-2-3-1 formations, as you say, but that central player behind the striker was very much a second striker. Um, yeah. Someone who pushed forward, who was, who was really you know part of that front two. Um, and I feel like Yazici is exactly that player, right? He is that kind of player who wants to play as the most advanced of a midfield three, sure, but but as a second striker, off a striker. And that makes things really interesting because I'm, I wonder what happens there or I wonder if he brings in his own man to you know make that spot his own. And I think, you know, remember Henrik Mkhitaryan playing that second striker role um, at Roma. And if I'm not mistaken, he scored that 12, 13 goals. Um, mm. So, you know, that player is a really, really important piece in Fonseca's style. And I think that looking at the kind of place pieces in place, as you say, yes, some of it makes sense. Jonathan David is probably going to be the focal point. All of these things add up. But I wonder if Yazici gets brought back in. He's only 25 still. Um, I know. You know and he's L1, a really weird player, isn't yeah. he? As you say, he's like hard to pin down because he is basically a support striker. So this might be perfect for him. He might come back in and, and have a say on things. I don't know if he's going to continue in Russia or not. Obviously, a lot of players are tending to come back from Russia at the moment for obvious reasons. So we'll see. That might give him six or seven pieces rather than five or six there. Um, but yeah, lots to, uh, lots to accomplish for Fonseca. He needs to get to work as quickly as possible. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Who's in it for then? Okay, so Vincent Company is taking over or has taken over at Burnley. And I think it's fair to say, you know, with the preface of this ranking was that these teams are going for something a little bit different. I think it's fair to say that Burnley have gone for something very, very, very different in the form of Vincent Company, having been managed by Sean Dyche for the best part of a decade. I think it was nine years in the end and and before he was sacked. So... Obviously, we know Dyche's Burnley was a, a rough and tumble 4-4-2, built on direct balls, built on physicality. Dyche himself felt like quite a tough love character and quite an unforgiving coach at times as well. I mean, even stepping away from the silly soundbite, sound bites about him like, eating worms and stuff like that, he just felt like someone that you were pretty scared to underperform in front of. Um, now, company is completely different. First of all, his general demeanour He's um, he's hugging his players. He's hugging his new signings. He's always grabbing them and he's, he's smiling the whole time. The announcement video for Scott Twine from MK Dons, you know, he's like he's it's like they've been best friends for ten years. 
I don't think you'd ever see Sean Dyche doing that. They're a completely different style of man manager. And then tactically as well, it could barely be more different. I mean, if Sean Dyche was mostly interested in not losing the ball deep and punting the ball forward to make sure that if you did lose the ball, it would be further forward so you were well protected. Well, companies asking his, his central midfielders to drop into a into the back line to form a temporary back three for build-up. That was Josh Cullen's role at Anderlecht for a long time, dropping yeah. to the side of the centre-back and making sure that he could either build play properly or that the centre-backs would have a channel to run into. And he transformed you know, Sergio Gomez, who used to be an attacking midfielder for Dortmund. He made him into a left-back, a really expansive attacking left-back. So, I mean, it's night and day. It really is. And one thing that was noted from companies and elect is they, they were very bad at defending transitions because they were too open and too easy to play through if the ball, if the ball, uh, if the ball was lost. Now, that is the sort of stuff that gives Sean Dyche night terrors. So again, all of the players that are going to stay over from one regime to the other, like I don't think you can get a lot more of a different, a different vibe tactically in world football than maybe Sean Dyche to Vincent Company. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think it's really interesting to see who they've been linked with. Now, Twine's obviously done amazingly for MK Dons in League One. Um, That's a step up now into the championship, but one that I think he's probably more than capable of making. He scored a ton of goals, didn't he? He scored an absolute shed load of goals. Yeah, Um, it's been really impressive watching him. Um, His announcement video did make me laugh um, and the responses to it on Twitter. Um, But it's, um, you know, it's going to be interesting to see who Burnley bring in now. Now, they've already been linked with with Josh Cullen, um, who I thought was going to make a Premier League move, but that might just sway him, um, the fact that company's there um, from Anderlecht. I wonder, you know, West Ham have been linked, Fulham have sent scouts. Um, so it's going to be it's going to be intriguing to see what happens with that one. But it, it feels like Burnley are going to have to shift, as you say. And, and I wonder which players take a look at this, will take a look at this at pre-season and go, this just isn't for me anymore because there's going to be a lot of, of, of people who have got a lot of changing up to do if they want to make it into a new regime. Yeah, definitely. I mean, look, they've got some really, really talented players at their disposal who can make the step. And to name a few, I think like, if he's sticking around, someone like Ashley Westwood would really enjoy that role that Josh Cullen was performing. And they've got Nathan Collins, who's a really, really good defender. Yeah. So they've got some they've got some important pieces. That they've lost Nick Pope and they probably need a bit of a, a revamp up top. I can't Valt Veghorst has said he will not play in the championship. So there's one gone. And you can't really see Maxwell Cornet sticking around either. So it yeah. is all changed. At the very least, from Burnley's perspective, they've got company in really early. Uh so we now get to work really soon. And they've also got Scott Twine in as a bit of like, um, how would you, what would you name it? It's like almost like a landmark, like a flagship signing for the summer. Yeah. Like, here's our new guy, and here's our new era, and this is this is the kind of player that we're going to take. Uh, it does all feel very, very different. So, very, very intriguing once it all kicks off. Yeah, I, I think so. I think so. And you're, you know, it's one of those where you, Twine coming in, and he obviously can play on the left or he can play in the 10 or he can play as a striker. He's, you know, he's a good player, a good piece to have in because he's able to mix it up and, and play in those, in those different roles. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see how they build around that. But I do think that we're looking at this Burnley squad and as you say, it's quite small. Um, and, and I think it's going to be interesting to see, obviously, as they, as we progress through this, if it gets even smaller before it gets bigger, like you say, Veghorst yeah. is probably not going to be there. There's going to be some names here who move on um, and and look to, to new things, which is also completely fine. Um, but they're going to need to start bringing in players pretty quickly, I think. 
hundred percent. Sean Dyche always kept a small squad, didn't he? Always a yes. small squad, which worked for him. But uh, company might be asking where the rest of the players are at preseason training. <laughs> well, it's it's hard, isn't it, at the moment? Because you know you're looking at this and thinking, well, yes, in the Premier League, you can deal with a bit of a small squad, right? Um, you can you can move around because there are less games. The Championship is a long, hard mm. season, um, and it's going to be even more truncated than it usually is because of the World Cup. You need to have the bodies in there or you will just get overrun by it and that's actually quite an important point to make ahead of a championship season 100% right I'll move us on then to number three Ernesto Valverde who is set to take over at Athletic Club we know this because John Uriarte won the presidential election and his promised managerial candidate was Valverde so He'll be taking the reins at some point soon following Marcelino's exit earlier in the summer. Valverde is basically Athletic Club. Um, He played for them, over 170 appearances for the club. He spent a year as an assistant manager there. He spent a year coaching the reserves. And he has two separate spells as manager of the club already, spanning six years in total. And it actually wasn't that long ago that he was manager of Athletic Club. It was about 2017. He had a nice four-year spell there from 13 to 17. And in moving back to this club, I looked at all of the players in common from the last time he was there to now. It's actually a pretty decent list, Jack. It's Ikamunayin, Inyaki Williams, Oscar de Marcos, Raul Garcia, Yeray, Asier Villalibre, and Mikel Vesga. Seven players. Not yes. bad. Not bad for five years in football. Yes, that's a very good point. And it's, that is, that's a good thing about Athletic Man. Lots of continuity. Yeah, and, and, and it's going to be intriguing now to see, see what happens here. But... I think with Valverde, he comes back in. You you made that point there. He knows this club, left, right and centre. And it was kind of mad to see in this presidential election, the fact that one of the candidates says we're bringing Marcelo Bielsa back. And you go, oh, okay, that's a big statement. And then the other two pull out Valverde. And they're like, okay, all right, cool. Everyone's just going to be happy whatever happens yeah. here as well. And, and And that's kind of nuts. Yeah, absolutely. It would have been, it would have been good. I mean, very different managers, of course, very different approaches, but it would have been a would have been great either way. But um, what Valverde has to do here is is take the reins at at a, at a team that I think ordinarily, in ordinary circumstances, would not be changing manager. No, because Marcelino did a really good job at Athletic, and he's got them in a in a, in a really good shape. And they finished pretty well in the league last season. A slight disappointment that they didn't make it into European competition, but they only just missed out in a very competitive top order in in La Liga. This is not the kind of job you usually pick up. And what Marcelino had basically done was make Athletic horrible to play against and really tough to score against. They yeah. conceded thirty six goals last season, so fewer than one per game on average. And their expected goals against record was the third best in the league too. So the underlying numbers support the case. They were defensively very, very good. And the problem obviously is the trade-off with Marcelino. You're not the most expansive attacking unit. The top scorer in Athletic, uh, in La Liga for Athletic last season was Iñaki Williams with eight goals, which is just not enough. And you know, Garcia and Sunset chipped in with six each and Munoyen got three. And Munoyen's playing a really good football. He's really, he's really is a rejuvenated figure, but he's just not scoring enough goals. So, Valverde needs to build on the defensive set that Marcelino has put out, but he needs to then combine that with more eye-catching football, certainly more attacking football, and goals. Man, goals. He need they need to score more goals, and they need to be a little bit more entertaining. But 
that's 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 tough to do without unraveling the defensive foundations that have been set. So it's an interesting balance to strike. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the last time Valverde took over from Bielsa, right? So yeah, yeah. It, I mean, it's just quite interesting in that he's had to make changes before. Now that's a completely different change to make. Um, but he brought you know some play- nice players through. I think they came fourth in his first season, which they got into Champions League. Fourth, yeah. um, you know, he has he has background for doing this for taking a team that's not necessarily completely built for his style and then using it and, and making it his quite quickly um so i think this is going to be a, a very very interesting little development here he never finished lower than seventh in his last stint highest was fourth got to the champions league but never lower than seventh in in four years in a row which is a hell of an achievement um considering the fact that as as many will, will know but some don't know athletic aren't allowed to buy players who aren't basque so Valverde can, has to step into a team and it can't just go to the market and just buy six new players to suit his philosophy. He's a hell of a job on his hands to, to change the way these players play because he really is only allowed to work with like a maximum total of about 35 players in the world of football. So for him to do this for a third time, it just speaks to how good a manager he is. And, and he, he actually hasn't been at work for two and a half years. Yeah. Since, since he was sacked by Barcelona in January 2020, He's been he's been just reading books and that, you know. Uh, hopefully he's an even better manager. Well, I think it's also about being a coach here, right? We talked about it a little bit with Fonseca. Um, mm. but actually this this is a big coaching job, Athletic Club, because of the way that the setup works and because of the way that they can only recruit from basically within. Um, it, it means that there's a you know a lot of coaching to do, but he did that last time, um, and and I think he has the capacity to do it again. So it's a really exciting time to be an athletic player. I think. I think it is. Yeah. Right. Let's go to number two. It's Alfred Schroeder. We have talked an awful lot about Eric Ten Hag and Man United, but we don't. I don't think we've spoken about the fact that some other dude has to go and take over at Ajax in Eric Ten Hag's stead. You know that it's it's some it's Al- other dude. <laughs> 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 and that's and, and that dude is Alfred Schroeder. Um, he's a former assistant of Ajax, in case you didn't know. He was Ten Hag's assistant during the 18-19 season. You know, that season. Uh, he left the club at that point for the Hoffenheim job. And he was sacked the summer after for underperformance, although he did finish sixth. And I think there were a couple of injuries there. So um, maybe a bit harsh, although I don't know all the details on that one. Um, he was at Club Bruges recently and was managing Charles de Quetelar and a few others, Noah Lang, and has now stepped in to the void and replaced Eric Ten Hag at Ajax. A couple of things, or three things to, um, to to note here. First of all, it seems to me like Schroeder has kind of stated a preference for playing a back three. He did it quite a lot at Hoffenheim and he did it quite a lot at Club Bruges as well. Back three. Now, I don't know how, in the modern times, how wedded Ajax are to this 4-3-3 in the way that Barcelona have kind of deviated to, but it does kind of just grind a little bit with the club tradition. Yes. The other thing to note is that he's kind of famous for playing players in the wrong position. So (laughs) I'll give you some good examples. Um, Sebastian Rudy, he played at right back uh, for Hoffenheim. I don't know why, but he, that's what he did. Um, Florian Grilich, he was the man that, that put Grilich into, into a defensive line for the first time, and that worked out really well. Yeah. Uh, the world-famous Dennis Adoy has you know, taken in some time at holding midfield 
for Club Bruges over the course well, we, of the second half of the season. I did actually genuinely say this for a quite a long time, talking about Fulham, that I thought that Adoy could maybe do a job in the six um, because he's quite <laughs> mobile um, and he's quite destructive and he wasn't that good going forwards. But um, yeah. he, he then went to Club Bruges and, and, and did a good job doing and, it. So it was very yeah. interesting. And there was another one at Hoffenheim. They signed uh, Robert Skov Olsen out of Denmark, uh, who'd scored like 31 goals um, from from a forward position. And he played him at left back. Um, he loves doing this. I think he winds a few people up. But obviously, he's a certain, certain way of viewing football and, and, and wants to do things for certain players. The other thing to note is that he hasn't always utilised a high-pressing game either. So there are a couple of things on paper here that you're like, OK, it's an interesting match for Ajax. And then you go back to that 2019 team that he helped coach. There are only three left, mate. Blind, Taliafico, Tadic. That's it. The rest of them are all gone. Long gone. In fact, Ajax have gone through an entire iteration of players, a full generation, and they've all moved on as well since then. You know, that's right. This is before and after Ryan Ravenberg was even involved and then sold. It's it's mad how much things have changed at Ajax in three straight years. Yeah. And on top of that, he's facing these daily rumours of, is Anthony going to go? Is Lissandro Martinez going to go? Is, is Urien Timber leaving so we talk about coaches with a lot to do I mean Schroeder's got an awful lot to do sure he's taking over the reigning champions it, it should it shouldn't be too difficult but at the same time there's a lot of change happening here at Ajax his philosophy that I've seen at his, in his previous career as a manager doesn't necessarily fully meld with Ajax as a tradition so let's see where the give and take is also who's going to play up front because Alaire's going and is it going to be Tadic again? Like, is he going to is he going to try and use Tadic as a as a nine? I'd love to see it, man. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see how how this one plays out. Um, I thought he did quite a good job at Club Bruges. Um, obviously, when he came in in January, it was it was not looking great for them. Union Saint Gilles were kind of running away with the league, um, and you then kind of look at how that panned out towards the end they won I think it was eight nine straight games at the end of the season um to get into those playoffs and then beat Union Saint-Gilois in the playoff that Belgium uses to to decide that work um and I thought that was well considering how things went for him and considering how he kind of looked at it they didn't lose a game in those playoffs they won for due to um, and considering you know where they kind of stood, um, he's gone and done a very very good job um, at, at kind of turning that season around and and leading Bruce to the title because it didn't look very good. I think you know the last game before he came in, they lost two 0 to Circle Bruges in the derby, um, and everyone was pretty angry um, about how things were playing out. Um, but he then only lost one game in his tenure from from that kind of January through to. Uh, April and, and and that playoff round. So that's not bad going, is it? Not bad at all. Absolutely not bad. So um, I'm interested to see it. I mean, obviously he's got some experience at Ajax before. He's got some experience with some of these players. He's coached at a decent level. Um, he's still relatively, I not say young, but in terms of like actual first team coach, the experience is limited, but he's been around some, some great minds and in some great situations and varied situations as well. He's taken in football in like three or four different countries already. So I'm very interested to see how it goes. He's got loads of questions to answer. I'm pretty sure that Ajax will be very, very strong once again, but exactly what they look like on the pitch is going to be kind of fascinating. Yeah. And I wonder if he does look to this Bruce squad, obviously we talked a bit about 
child of Ketelaire there. Um, And and I wonder if, I wonder if there's an eye on that as a, as a kind of different use of of a player, because, you know, as you say, the IX are lacking up top now because of the way that things have have, have worked out. Um, It's kind of unclear what the future of Brian Brobby looks like. Um, But I wonder if they look at the Ketelaire, especially if he is into that false nine with Tadic um, as an option to play up top. Yeah, interesting. Brobby, I feel like all the fans want Brobby back. What a yes. mess that's what what a mess that's been, eh? Free transfer to Leipzig, loaned back, and now Ajax will I mean happily pay for him, but just like talk about bad decisions left, right, and centre from everyone involved, eh? Never mind. It's been anyway. Not very good. Yeah, right. Let's move on to number one then, and it can only be Christophe Gaultier, who is set to replace Mauricio Pochettino at PSG. This is the first French manager PSG have appointed since Laurent Blanc. It is the first acquisition player or manager from inside France since they signed Kylian Mbappe. That, that is, is nuts, by the way. Yeah, nuts. it's ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. And uh, did you know that Christophe Gaultier was assistant manager for Portsmouth in 2005? No, I didn't. <laughs> I do now. Every now, day is a school day on ranks. And now he is manager of the second richest club in world football. Uh, right, what do we know about Gaultier? We know his brand of football can be stingy to a point of ridiculousness at times. Last season, even with a Nice team that I'd say probably they underperformed and he underperformed uh, according to expectation. They had the tied best record for goals conceded in the league with PSG, which was 36. And the year before that, he won the title with Lille and they conceded 23 goals in 38 games. We are under no illusions here, Jack. This is a marked change in strategy. Not only is he French, but also he defends, which has just not really been PSG's bag for the last four years. Not really part of the MO. Um, Which makes this a really awkward and strange fit at points because this is PSG. Like, They're a club who model themselves as like a glitz and glamour brand, top of the range. They have Neymar and Mbappe and Messi, and they sell more shirts than anybody else with a Jordan collab. And they've appointed stingy old Christophe Gaultier, who just doesn't want to concede goals, whose football is brutally effective at points, but does occasionally make your eyes bleed. So how is this one going to play out? Well... That's the the million dollar question, isn't it? In in so many ways. Um, PSG appointing someone who can defend feels like a relatively sensible move at this point, considering the way that they crashed out of the Champions League this season. Um, Obviously, kind of the league is the minimum requirement and this is the last man to have beaten them to said title. Um, So there's something, there's probably something in that. Um, But I do wonder if he's going to go to a three at the back here, Sam. This is my big question. Yeah, I don't know. We've got Lewis Campos, who is in this like football strategy role for them. Um, and he's kind of, there are little leaks here and there. And it's been a suggestion that 3-5-2 might be an option. I mean, look, there's there's merit in that. Gaultier has tended to like some kind of strike duo, even if it's not a straight two-man partnership, like it was with, say, Burek Yilmaz and Jonathan David at Lille. Um, it can be a little bit more fluid, uh, like like at Nice with... Um, with Guiri and, and Andy Delort, you know, but he likes, he likes one of the players he likes up front is, is to be quite big. He does like that. And that would explain why they've been linked so heavily to Gianluca Scamacca. Yeah. And he also did great things with Renato Sanchez at Lille. And that would explain that link. And a rumor of three, five, two makes good use of the center backs does leave some questions around Neymar, 
I don't know. If you, uh, over the weekend, it leaves some yeah, big yeah. questions about Neymar. I would say, um, yeah. Now Neymar is one of the most talented footballers on earth. I don't think anybody's denying that, um, but he doesn't strike me as a Gaudio player, um, and that yeah. is potentially why there are rumours of him leaving to everyone and their dog. Yeah, precisely. I mean, there's there's all sorts of talk about his contract auto renewing next month for another five years or something like that. I mean, I saw Adam Crafton from the, the Athletic basically confirming that. But they're all kind of open to whatever, but they've all kind of candidly admitted that, yeah, Neymar has, has, has looked at the possibility of leaving. Like it's it's been on the radar for everyone and everyone's kind of aware of that. But this is another thing to add to all the other things that their sporting advisor, Luis Campos, is, is having to try and coordinate behind the scenes. It has taken them a long time to achieve, I wouldn't say nothing because lots of things are about to happen, but nothing's really happened yet. It took them ages to fire Leonardo and therefore get Luis Campos into a position of power. It's taken them ages to get rid of Pochettino. And now it's taken them ages to get Gaultier in. And they haven't signed a player yet. They're supposedly, you know, right at the door with Vitinha. And Renato Sanchez could be in the works. But it's nearly July and not a lot's actually happened yet. Yeah, The season, the season kicks off on August the 5th. Yeah, this is the thing, right? I think, you know, we've been looking at this in general as clubs who haven't been making massive decisions. And look, I think there's a lot going to go down on July 1, right? Because that's the, yeah. the deadline, the FFP deadlines. There's lots of things going on. Um, but it was like, you know, one of these things where it feels like July 1, like 50 moves are going to happen. You know, all yeah. the free agent deals, all the deals that are waiting on FFP to clear before they go through. Um, so so there's lots here. But it, I, I think the struggle here is that, you know, as you say, it's a month and five days or so from July 1 to August 5. Um, and, and actually, if you're looking at that, you're thinking this is quite late, quite stressful. And there's a point to be made about the fact that, especially if you're completely changing systems and teams, you do need time to settle on working out new formations, new you know systems, new philosophies and how they come into their own. Hundred percent, yeah, hundred percent. It's a good point about July one. I, I don't know how, if you've got the same feeling, but with all these impending free agents, I just feel like the so, it's never really we've never really got to like June twenty nine where we are today, and we're like, hang on, we don't know where any of these players are actually like Dybala, Usman Dembele, all of these are expiring contracts. They still have no idea what they're doing. Is yeah. it is it is it often this unorganized? I don't think it is. I feel like we've usually got this stuff wrapped up. I feel like we've probably come to a point where the Bosman transfers and the Bosman ruling has come to its own in that players are now just being like, we'll wait until my contract ends and then sign on a free because it means that the club aren't getting money I am, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. And there's nothing wrong with players being paid those fees. That This is the natural kind of denouement of that ruling, right? We've got to that end point. But... There's something to be said that I think that this is happening more and more regularly now. And we've seen it more this season than I think we've ever seen before, which is huge. Yeah. And that it's all and it's all been delayed. It's all happening later and later and later. I don't, it's not often that you actually get that many players become literal free agents, as in on July 2nd or July 1st, they're unemployed. That doesn't tend to happen. They've usually got something sorted. So... Yeah, very interesting. But anyway, there's your five. So we started with Paolo Fonseca to Lille. Big football makeover happening there. Company to Burnley, you can say the same. Valverde gets his third crack at the job at Athletic Club Manager. Alfred Schroeder has to step into Eric Ten Hag's shoes. A tough job. And Gaultier is in the most 
well, what can we call that? That's the that's the that's the pressure point seat in all of managerial, uh, all of football, isn't it? Really, that. Well, I mean, it's either that or Manchester United, isn't it? They're, they they feel like the two pressure yeah. points at the moment in terms of what these clubs can be and what these clubs feel that they deserve to be and the level they deserve to be at. And and that's going to be incredibly interesting. But that was a really good ranking. Um, I really enjoyed it. And it, it does feel like there's a lot to do. Um, now, these aren't the only clubs with a lot to do, obviously, but... I think you've nailed it in terms of making those changes and, and finding out new ways of working under new managers. These are the these are the ones that jump out alongside Eric Ten Hag at Manchester United, yeah. of course. Um, yeah. These are the ones that jump out to be like, okay, there is new things happening here, and we need to keep an eye on them. Yes, absolutely. As I said last week, and I'll say a billion times more in the next three days, I can't wait for preseason. I just want to see how these these projects are shaping out. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, well done, Sam. Very, very good. Um, and thank you for the, the legwork there while I was running around in a field. Uh, we'll be talking about, <laughs> me more about me running around in a field in the gibberish rankings after the break. Stick with us. Welcome back to Ranks FC, where it's time for everybody's favourite part of the show. It's time for Melon of the Week. And this week's Melon of the Week was a genuine toss-up. There were two competitors in there. Um, we're going to give it, I think, to new Chelsea owner Todd Burley. But before we do, I just want to give a you know an honourable mention to basically everyone involved in the Joan Gamper saga. Um, Roma have pulled out. For those of you who don't know, the Joan Gamper trophy is a thing organised by Barcelona at the start of every season. The men's team and the women's team play against the men's team and a women's team from another place, um, which is fine. This year, it was set to be Roma. Um, now, Roma have pulled out of this, stating the fact that they didn't feel like it was actually in line with the rest of their preseason concerns, which does beg the question why they signed up for it in the first place. Um, but now Barcelona have gone one further and I said they are looking at legal experts to see if they can sue Roma <laughs> for pulling out of it, which seems a bit extreme for pulling out of a pre-season friendly. Yeah, to it's be a pre-season tournament, you. man. It's a good trophy in that. But I mean, ultimately, the Joan Gamper co- competition is not important. It's just not. <laughs> Barcelona so have a, such a high opinion of this of this, this this preseason competition. Every year, obviously, they host the tournament. Great, great tradition, great history. It's a preseason cup, man. No one cares. Yeah, just literally cool it off. Yeah. Um, but I think they've been trumped by Todd Burley, who has Sam basically just assumed control of everything at Chelsea, and uh, and appears to just have like been like, I'll do this. I want to have a go at being a football director. Yeah, I'd be pretty worried if I was a Chelsea fan right now because for. For years and years, they've been right at the top of the game. Obviously, uh, one of one of one of the forces in Europe, and part of that has been down to the fact that they have been extremely well run in certain parts. Great, great minds in the sporting director field, and you know Marina Granovskia has been largely excellent in conducting transfer business. Petr Cech has been a, a really helpful uh, figure in the football operations side of things. These two people I've just named are gone; they're no longer part of Chelsea. But Todd Burley is. Todd Burley is apparently, reportedly, setting up meetings with George Mendes to discuss the idea of signing Cristiano Ronaldo for Chelsea. He's like a kid on Football Manager. He's bought a club for like four billion quid and gone, well, you know what? I'm going to give this a go because I own this place. And a part of me is like, fair play. Like, this is this is quite funny. But again, in terms in serious football terms, if I was a Chelsea fan, I would be really, really worried about the direction of this. 
Yeah, it doesn't feel right. It feels like if they're not like trying to sign City players in Sterling and Nathan Arke, apparently, um, then they're trying to, you know, they're linked with everyone from Neymar, as you say, to Cristiano Ronaldo. And yeah. that makes makes yeah. for some pretty uncomfortable reading, I think. Well, it's it's led to the joke on Twitter this morning that we were reading, Jack, that uh, Todd Burley has given himself the number nine shirt. You know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's becoming a story in itself and that is never a good thing. Yeah, um, well, there have been some pretty poor recipients of the Chelsea number nine shirt in years. <laughs> Carlin Bula Ruse comes to mind. Yeah. Um, so it's a curse, maybe, isn't it? It's a cursed shirt. It might well be a cursed shirt. So maybe Todd Burley is actually the man to fix that curse um, once he gives the nine shirt to himself. <laughs> um, so there, there we go. Todd Burley, Melon of the Week. It's going to be very interesting to see how that one plays out. Now, Sam, I might need you to do me a favour here because I don't think I have the capacity to do the gibberish alarm noise. No, I don't. How do you do it? You just sort of roll your tongue. <laughs> that was like the elephant from um, the Jungle Book. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. That didn't we'll come it. out as I planned to, but I, it, it works. I quite like it. I quite like it. Maybe we'll have to use that in future. Um, that was that was excellent. Um, right, that is Shivrish Alarm. Um, and I'm going to rank the three best things. <laughs> that was horrible. I really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed it. Um, I'm going to rank the three best things that I saw at Glastonbury this weekend. And I'm going to start at three with Foles, who were absolutely exceptional. They played late night on the other stage and uh, there was a bit of a discussion because there was a lot going on at the same time as Foles um but they are probably still the best live band I've ever seen um and I saw them 10 odd years ago at Reading Festival um and I remember that being like this is exceptional and in the middle of that set they played Two Steps Twice, um, which, if you don't know, is an absolutely phenomenal tune. Um, in that, they got everyone to sit down um, before the, before the oh, job basically it. comes and everyone bounces back up as it, as it, as it comes up. Um, this time, they just finished with it. Um, and it was really, really cool to hear that, you know, that kind of con- continuity between a set 10 years ago um, and a set here at Glastonbury. Um, they have, you know, banger after banger after banger falls. Um, but they were absolutely electric live um and i feel that they probably just about sneak in here ahead of some of the djs um that i saw um second i'm going to go with kendrick lamar who set on the main stage the pyramid stage was well historic it felt now this was another one twitter mate it absolutely broke the internet well, we genuinely considered that, you know, lots of different things here. There was loads going on. Bicep were playing at the same time, um, which would have been absolutely unbelievable. And I've now watched back and it does look like an amazing thing. But it did feel like this Kendrick set was kind of like historic. Um, mm. and, and it felt like a real moment, a cultural moment. And my fr- you know, family were all texting me about different things they were watching um, at the same time. And I was just a bit confused as to why they weren't watching this. Um, I was like, I'm standing here in front of it going, this is something quite remarkable. And, and in, in doing so, you know, the, you know, the messages put out, the music, the continuity, the choreography, um, everything about this set felt like a moment in time on the pyramid stage. And, and that for me was, you know, remarkable. I'm glad to hear it broke Twitter, Sam, because mm. it, it felt from where we were standing, like one of those things you're like, if we had missed this, I would have been absolutely devastated. Um, yeah. and, and it felt like just a, a, a really quite special set. So Kendrick goes in at two. At two? 
At two. Kendrick goes in at two because the best thing I saw at Glastonbury this weekend was a flag of Alexander Mitrovic eating a pizza. No, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> that, that did happen. There was a flag of Alexander Mitrovic eating a pizza in a changing room. Um, the best thing I saw this weekend at Glastonbury was Sam Fender. Uh, now, I say this not lightly because much as I quite like a few Sam Fender songs, this wasn't the one I was like, oh, I must see this. This is a not miss. It, I went because one of my friends really, really likes him. And I was just like, yeah, I'll come with you. There's nothing huge else going on at the moment. Um, but this just was absolutely sensational. And I think it was quite mind-blowing how impressed with he, you know, with him that he was. Like it, He was on stage looking out, being like, this is absolutely unbelievable. Sam Fender is a, a singer-songwriter from, from near Newcastle, from South Shields, um, who... You know, wrote to, has a few major hits, but not, you know, I, w- I wouldn't say loads and loads and loads. Um, but he just felt like the standout act on, on the Friday. And I think this was a set where everybody afterwards, and you can usually tell this where a really brilliant set has gone on. If the crowd afterwards are still singing the songs 10 minutes later, he's left stage, he's not coming back on. And mm. the crowd are still going around the repertoire. And that was the case with Sam Fender, whose hypersonic missiles at the end of his set just absolutely took the place apart. Um, and I thought that it was remarkable. The amount of people in old school Newcastle shirts, by the way, it was just right. e- everywhere everywhere old school Newcastle shirts Newcastle um, away was it? it it felt a bit Sam Fender away yeah um, <laughs> it was just incredible um and and you know the the kind of sing-along songs and those those ending three or four tunes from Sam Fender were amazing last year yesterday when I came home I was like I'm gonna have a bath and I'm gonna watch the Sam Fender set back straight away and I spent the entire time in tears. Um, I mean, part of that is that I'm an incredibly emotional human being. Part of that is because I'm a bit broken. Um, but part of it is also just quite how special this set was. So um, shouts out Sam Fender. Um, Honourable mention to Bad Boy Chiller Crew, who played on Thursday night and were absolutely ludicrously good. Um, but these three <laughs> these three were the ones that stood out for me across the course of the weekend. So uh, follows Kendrick Lamar and Sam Fender. My three top acts from Glastonbury 2022. Nice, mate. I'm glad you had a wicked time. I know you've been uh, waiting for this for a long time. And, yes. Uh, but, more, but more importantly, from a business perspective, I'm just glad you came back Alive. in one piece. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, did feel, it was touch and go <laughs> yesterday at points, I'll be honest. But uh, yeah. but we're okay. We, uh, I no longer feel like complete death. Um, so I feel like this week we will we'll palm that out and we'll, we'll get back to basics. Um, and on that note, Sam, I think we're probably going to call this a day. Um, what was me to do is say thank you very much, Mr. Sam Tai, for a wonderful main ranking. Yeah, when's Dean back? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> At some point, Dean is going to return home, but I do not know when that time is. Um, he's having a wonderful time in California, by all accounts. So yeah. that's the uh, that's the good news. When I watched LAFC against New York Red Bulls on Sunday, I texted him and just said, "Oh, are you there?" By the way, and he just sent me a picture. Um, of a strawberry daiquiri and said no mate just at the pool bar treating these like pints of water and I thought okay mate you will you crack on and enjoy that don't worry about LASC I'm sure he'll have plenty of stories to tell us in the gibberishes when he gets home but uh, yeah. I'm not sure quite when that will be um, right I've been Jack Collins this has been Ranks FC I'm going to call this a day before my voice completely and utterly shatters thank you so much for listening as ever and we will see you next week take it easy gang Peace.